The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We continue to make our way through Matthew's Gospel. We're in the last part of of chapter 22, verses 34 through 46, page 828, if you're using the Pew Bibles. So I invite you to listen carefully to this, the public reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 22, and beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him, any more questions? Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and seek his blessing as we receive the word today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do bless you pray and praise you for being such a loving father to us and for giving us this, your blessed word, for the privilege of hearing that word proclaimed before us again this day. Father, as we, would, as we hear it, may we do so with your blessing upon us indeed by your spirit. We would plead with you, O God, that you would come, that you would work in our hearts, grant that more fully we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free and that we then would walk on that path of righteousness to which you have called us in union with our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us for his sake, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. I just love the way those were the, the text ends, those words that no one was able to answer him a question. No one was able to answer him, nor did they dare come and ask him any more questions. It kind of reminds me of uh, an expression I, I heard at times when I was a missionary in Africa. Sometimes the, the Karamajong would say this, in, in Karamajong they'd say, there's nothing I can say. Maybe, it, maybe a man was uh, rebuked for doing something wrong and he's just sitting there listening and it's like the expression on his faith, you're right, you got me. There's nothing I can say. I, I cry, uncle, you win. Uh, there's nothing I can say. In some ways... Uh, though it wasn't with a kind of submission we would we would have liked to have seen, but in some ways that's kind of how it was for the religious leaders in this section as they've come to Jesus, they've sought to oppose him, they've they've tried to test him, they've brought three uh, challenges, three questions. The last of those three is before us 
this morning. And each challenge has been answered in such a way as to leave them with their hands over their mouths, as it were, nothing to say. They marvel and they leave him, as we see up in verse 22, or they they say nothing, but the crowds are astonished. I presume also the Sadducees were astonished like the crowds in verse 33 we saw last time. And presumably, I think it's the same with this this third challenge question about the, 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 the greatest commandment we see in our text today. Note that Matthew no, uh, records no response on their part to our Lord's answer to their question. Instead, we see that what immediately follows is our Lord's counter challenge. I think in some ways it's, it's kind of like when, when Job has been challenging the Lord. And of course, the difference is here, Jesus has been answering the challenges all along the way, but similar in the way that finally the Lord turns on Job and he says, now, now you, you just listen and I will challenge you. Jesus turns, I will question you now. Our Lord's responses to their questions and then this a counter challenge, his question to them in a sense does what happened to Job. It leaves them completely speechless. I lay my hand on my mouth. Now, this morning, we're covering both the last challenge as well as our Lord's counter challenge. And in doing so, we're covering two marvelous, marvelous texts, such uh, greatly important topics before us. What could be more important than to talk about the law of God? And what could be more important than to talk about who the identity of God's Messiah. Each of these texts could have been its own separate sermon, but I do think it's edifying to consider them together. And I want to suggest this morning that together they bring the message reflected in my sermon title. Our our, our message this morning is simply this, that Jesus is the Messiah Lord of the law of love. Jesus is the Messiah Lord of the law of love. We have three points uh, this morning, the first comes from that first section, and, the, and what we'll see is that Jesus reveals the love principle of the law. And then the second comes from the second section, that, and which is this, that, that Jesus reveals his lordship as the Messiah. And then lastly, we'll take those two points together and suggest that the entire section shows us then how Jesus rules over his kingdom by his law of love. So note that first point then. Jesus reveals the love principle of the law. This is the first section there, verses 34 through 40. Here the Pharisees again come to Jesus. They see that, they see that he has silenced the Sadducees. Now, as they come to him, their, their motives are no better than they were than they, when they came to him trying to entangle him with the tax question back in verses 15 through 22. Perhaps they come in greater numbers because we're told in verse 34 that they, they gather against him. There's one who He's a lawyer, we're told. He serves as the, uh, the spokesperson, but he really represents the many. And they bring their question in order, we see, it says, to test him. That, that word certainly speaks to their malicious intent. They were, they were trying to find him, trying, trying to find some basis for accusing Jesus. And so they come with this question, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? 
Now, it was common in Jesus' day for the different rabbis, the Jewish teachers, to have debates about the relative importance of the commandments. You know, one might suggest that this this commandment or this principle in the law takes precedence over this one or that one, and there was some risk involved in entering into that debate, because if you emphasize this commandment in the law, you might undermine the teaching of another rabbi. You may make, your, make him to be make him to see you as an enemy. And there's no doubt that the, uh, the Jews were trying to turn Jesus into the enemy of all of the Jewish rabbis. They were trying to make him out to be the great enemy. The other thing that they were clearly, I think, trying to do was to show that Jesus was against Moses, to, sh- to show that Jews- Jesus was, was seeking to do the very thing that Jesus himself said, I have not come to do, back in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has come to abolish the law of Moses. Now, we know the truth. Of course, Jesus was not against Moses, not at all. Jesus had come to fulfill all that Moses had written. The very person and ministry of Moses, it all pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to, to the coming of the Christ who would show himself to be not only the, the one who could rightly interpret Moses, but the one who was greater than Moses, the second Moses. And we've seen that already in Matthew's gospel. And surely I think it's, it's proven powerfully before us as we see the way in which Jesus confounds, he silences the Pharisee, Pharisees. He does so with what's such a marvelous answer, one that should also confound and silence you and me this morning and move us to bow before him in worship, marveling at his wisdom and marveling at his love, his love in the, in the, the infinite wisdom and love of God in Christ. We see that Jesus did not simply pick one commandment. You know, he might have picked one of the Ten Commandments, right? What about the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What could be more important than that? He could have done that, but what does he do? He cites the scriptures, first Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verse 5, that, that passage which says essentially, love the Lord your God with your whole being, right? It's just interpreted different in the uh, Old Testament and the New a little bit, but whether it's your, your, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, love your God with all that you are. And then the second, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. There Jesus cites Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, the golden rule. Now, what was Jesus doing here? Well, to use the, the language of our catechisms, Jesus was, rather than picking any one commandment, he was providing a sum of all of the commandments. In fact, our, we know that our catechism teaches that the, the Deuteronomy 6 passage serves as something of a summary for the first four commandments of the Decalogue, which speak to our duty towards our God. And then the Leviticus 19 text speak, uh, serves as a summary of the last six commandments which speak to our duty towards our fellow man. But again, notice, notice how Jesus so, so beautifully, he focuses not on any one particular commandment, but he brings it all together by focusing on that principle, which is at the heart of all of God's commandments. Love, love for God, love for one another. I came across uh, one comment or one 
uh, some words from a commentator, which I think uh, help us describe what Jesus is doing here, although I think as helpful as they are, I think we need to improve upon them just a little bit. Listen to these words and see if you might guess why I would say that. This is R.T. France, who writes that Jesus, quote, lifts the discussion above merely adjudicating between competing rules And he gives the priority to a principle which has potential application to virtually every aspect of religious and communal life. Helpful words. I think they need improved upon because I think we need to remove those qualifiers. The principle of love, the principle of God's love does not have merely potential application and not application to virtually every aspect of religious and communal life, God's law applies absolutely. The principle of love revealed in God's law has absolute application to every aspect of religious life and communal life. Put simply this morning, we can say that the law of God calls us to love absolutely, and it absolutely applies to everything, religious life, the call to live in communion with God, to worship God, communal life, how we live in communion with one another as God's people. The law is a call to love God and to love one another perfectly. What a beautiful answer. What a marvelous answer. What a wise answer Jesus brings. But friends, this morning, that answer would not be good news for us were it not for the one who is providing that answer, speaking these words, for it not what Jesus, were it not for the thing that Jesus was doing in this very text. Don't ever forget, don't ever forget that first use of the law, which is to drive us to Christ. We live beneath the cross of Jesus. The law shows us our sin and it drives us to Christ. The most important thing we need to learn about these words is the one who is speaking them. That is to receive these words in the context of Matthew's gospel, the revelation of who Jesus is. And so, no, Jesus was not merely sort of lifting the discussion up to some kind of abstract principle. Really, we'd have to say that in expounding the law, the essence of the law, the essence of the law, which is love, Jesus was revealing his own person. He was revealing himself. So back to our point here, when I say that that Jesus reveals the love principle of the law, I think we need to say that the emphasis there is on the word Jesus. Jesus reveals the love principle of the law. Jesus his person, his work. He reveals love. The love principle of the law is revealed in Christ. You know, the truth is uh, this morning that that, that Jesus was not the first Jew to see the importance of those Deuteronomy 6 words. Uh, Every faithful Jew understood the importance. In fact, the the really zealous Jews, well, they they posted those words on the, the doorposts of their homes or in those phylacteries, those little leather boxes that they would they put a little the copies of those very words and strapped them to their arms they ever had on their minds. They would recite twice a day those words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And 
rabbis certainly did notice the importance of the, 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 the principle of loving the, one's neighbor, the importance of those words in Leviticus chapter 19. So what was it then? What was it that so confounded these religious leaders? It may be that this was the first time it was framed in such a way, but there was something about the way Jesus spoke, his amazing wisdom, his amazing authority. I think it was the fact that Jesus himself was the supreme revelation of God's love. Just think about what was going on here. Here, these religious leaders are coming to Jesus, claiming such great knowledge of God's law, claiming such great faithfulness to that law. And here, they were they were opposing God. They were opposing the Son of God. They were in doing so. They were trampling all over the love principle of the law. They were coming against God Himself with such murderous hatred. They were they were against the One who was the supreme revelation of God's law. Keep in mind, this. we know this about the law. The law is a revelation of God's own righteous character. That love principle at the essence of the law, it reminds us that God, above all, he is a God of perfect love. And who is this Jesus to whom they were speaking? Well, he's the son of God. Jesus, the supreme revelation of the law of God. Jesus was perfect love, and he was revealed so to be not only because he was the one who who gave the law, that was true, but also as the one who had come and become man, as the God, man, Messiah, the one who came in, in perfect submission to the law of God. Jesus is the one who in all that he did, he loved his God perfectly, and he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. He loved us. He loved you. He loved me. He loved us enough to be willing to face these wicked religious leaders as we see him doing it in the text. And we know that though for now they would be silenced and confounded by his supreme wisdom and the revelation of his love as well as his exalted status as the Messiah, which we'll see in our next point, but they know that we, we know that they would come back. They would conspire against him and they would hand, they'd deliver him over to be crucified. But he would go. Indeed, he went willingly all for the sake of love. By this we know what love is, writes the apostle John. Jesus Christ, he laid down his life. Jesus reveals the love principle of the law. And he does so as the Messiah Lord. That brings us to our second point this morning. Not only does he reveal the love principle of the law, but he reveals his lordship as the Messiah. So this is the second section, verses 41 through 46. It seems that the Pharisees here, they're still gathered together. They've been confounded by his answer to their law question. I presume that in a sense, they're kind of in hand is over the mouth mode, right? Kind of like Job. What am I going to speak? And it's beautiful the way Jesus, he kind of goes for the jugular here, doesn't he? It's kind of a like the Lord turning on Job and saying, brace yourself like a man and I will question you. And we see how they are further confounded, not only by the love principle of the law, but also by what Jesus reveals here about the identity of the Messiah. 
Again, most amazing what we see, these religious leaders claiming such great knowledge and faithfulness, knowledge of and faithfulness to the scriptures. But they are shown here to be ignorant about something so important, even the identity of the the Christ, the Messiah. The Greek word Christ is the, the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus asks him that question, verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And this is a subject about which everyone knew something, right? Everyone was waiting. Israel was living in expectation that the Messiah would come. He would come and he would, he would deliver Israel. He would fulfill all of their hopes. He would bless them with all of the blessing which God had promised. Surely they should have been ready for this simple question. Who is this one? Well, they could kind of answer the question, right? Jesus asked, whose son is he? And they, they gave the right answer that this was the answer everyone knew. He's the, he is the son of David. That's indeed a correct answer. We, we know that from Second Samuel chapter seven and elsewhere in scripture that God had promised David that one of his descendants would come and he would take up the throne uh, as king over Israel. But Jesus follows up with a question which absolutely, absolutely astounds them, one which they could not answer. Verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Jesus there cites, uh, next cites Psalm 110 verse 1, and this is a, a psalm about the Messiah written by David, in which David refers to the coming Messiah King. But in that psalm, he refers to the Messiah not as his son, but as his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, we should point something out about about this text and the, the, the psalm which Jesus recites, if you were to open up our Bibles and look at Psalm 110, verse 1, we'd note that the that word Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, those words Lord, it, the first word would be all caps, capital L-O-R-D. The second would be capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Well, why is that? Well, that, we know that first word is the word Yahweh, that covenant name by which the Lord revealed himself to Israel through Moses, the God who is, I am who I am, God's covenant name, the Lord. But the second word, Lord, the Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, the second word is that word Adonai, which simply means Lord as in master or Lord. Now, in the Septuagint, Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Old Testament, both words for but both words were simply that word kurios, Lord or Master, and this reflects the practice of the Jews, which began hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. You know, they didn't want to take a chance, and they didn't like to use that name Yahweh uh, because they were afraid they might misuse it and break the commandment, not uh, take the the, the the Lord's name in vain. So they would instead insert that word Adonai, uh, Lord or Master, and and so the so the Spirit inspired the New Testament writers to translate this psalm as we have it in our text this morning and elsewhere where we see it in the New Testament. They simply use that word kurios, Lord, Master, or Lord. 
And what, what, what's the significance of all of this? Well, I think we can, we can say a few things. For one thing, it's absolutely true that the Lord, Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, is indeed Lord, master, ruler over all of the universe. He's Lord of all. And secondly, what does this teach us then about the Messiah? That the Messiah who would come would indeed be God himself, Israel's covenant Lord, the Messiah is this same Lord. This one who would come as a man, the son of David, would be truly God. God would become man. He would be both David's son and David's Lord. He would be the the, the Christ. The Messiah would be the God-man. This is the, the wonder of the incarnation, which we can see beautifully is taught even in the Old Testament, though I would say that even faithful Jews probably did not fully understand this. They weren't able to grasp this. I think in some ways we can say that it was, it was something of a mystery which was kept hidden until the fullness of the times, the coming of Christ. Certainly these wicked rulers who are opposing Jesus or these teachers opposing Jesus were unable. They weren't ready for such amazing truth. And, but what they were not ready for is, is this. As we saw in our last point, Jesus was not simply teaching about who the Messiah was. This was a claim uh, that, that he himself was the Messiah. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, the God-man. And not only was he claiming it, I think he was demonstrating it by such powerful words, such words of wisdom that even confounded these religious leaders. Here, what was happening is they were confronted. They didn't submit to this reality, but they were confronted by the reality that they were confronting the Messiah, the God-man. They were opposing the Lord of glory, God himself. And I think that that the way his words confounded them in in, in Matthew's gospel is part of the proof that Jesus was all that he claimed to be. Jesus was, Jesus is indeed the Messiah Lord. What a marvelous moment this was. We know, as I, as I already said, right, that their opposition to Jesus would not end at this point. But what a, what a, what a, what a marvelous moment to see the truth revealed that all of their efforts to oppose God, these ones in the end, they would not stop the kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah, he would rule in his kingdom. In the end, every mouth would be stopped. The wicked would be confounded and Christ would rule in his kingdom. There's a truth that ought to encourage our hearts this morning. I think that's an important application that we want to make. And there are several applications that flow out of that truth as we move to our last point this morning, which is that he, Jesus, the Messiah King, he rules, he rules over his kingdom of love. He rules over his kingdom of love. Jesus is the Messiah Lord, and he rules over his kingdom, we might say, by his law of perfect love. It's true that these Wicked religious leaders were not finished with their dirty work. They would conspire against him. They would deliver him over to be crucified. But praise God that God raised him from the dead and has made him to be king of kings and lord of lords. In the end, evil did not prevail. 
And I think that even in our text this morning, the crowds, as they saw the religious leaders leaving him with nothing to say, they were given something, we are given something of a foretaste of that reality. But what was already seen then is so wonderfully true for us today. Beloved, we need to hear that this morning, don't we? In the end, the wicked, they will not prevail. If you doubt that, if you need reminded of that, just see how how that's powerfully demonstrated in our text before us today. It's so easy for for us to lose sight of that because we see all of the the, the wicked in the world around us. We see see the evil and we become discouraged and we, we forget that Christ is indeed on his throne. Don't forget that. Jesus saw the evil too, and he didn't run from it. He faced it. He overcame it. He made that evil to be his path unto eternal glory. Some believe that the the language there in Matthew's gospel, verse 34 of the the Pharisees gathering together, that that there's an allusion there, intentional allusion to Psalm chapter 2. Remember what Psalm chapter 2 teaches, how the the rulers gather together. They, They gather against the Lord and against his anointed. And it doesn't go so well for them, does it? The Lord scoffs and he rebukes them in his wrath. He says, I have set my king upon Zion, my very king who will take that, that rod of iron. He will dash to pieces all of the nations who oppose him. Our crucified Lord, yes, they opposed him, but, 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 but God has raised him from the dead. And he's ascended into heaven and we live in the sure and certain hope that he will come again and he will judge the living and the dead. He will come again. He will judge the living and the dead and he will receive his people into his kingdom. That's wonderful news. It's not such wonderful news for you yet if you've not yet submitted to him and and bowed the knee to him. I wondered this morning if there are any here who have never Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. You're yet against him. You're yet, uh, in the text, we'd say you're together with the Pharisees who opposed Jesus. If that describes you this morning, we would plead with you. May God open up your eyes to see him for the, the glorious Lord that he is and su- submit your life to him. Turn to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't wait. Do so today. Trust Christ and you too will take up your place in his kingdom. This is a call for you. This is a call for all of us to turn from our lawless ways and to live under the gracious rule of the Lord, the Messiah King who rules by his law of love. I think another important application we can make in in bringing us into God's kingdom, God brings us, Jesus brings us into a proper relation to the law of God. And we think about the law, there, there are two basic errors to be avoid, avoided here. There's the error of legalism and there's the error of antinomianism. So the legalist looks to the law as his means of being justified. He thinks, by my own law keeping, I will attain my right standing before God. That's what the Pharisees did. Truthfully, we know that that so much of their law-keeping was really keeping not God's law, but man-made traditions, which were distortions of God's law, which undermined God's law. But they failed to see 
their sin. They failed to see how their, how the law showed them their need of the forgiveness of a gracious and loving God. No wonder they trampled all over, all over the love principle of the law. By God's grace this morning, we who belong to Christ, we are no longer as the Pharisees were. We understand how the law drives us to Christ. It drives us to him again and again to receive his mercy. And we we don't oppose him, do we? We humble ourselves before him and we learn from him. We don't neglect his word, neither his law nor his commandments, but we sit at the feet of Jesus and we learn from him. Brothers and sisters, when we fail to do that, when we fail to to give God's word that proper place, the center of our lives, we live uh, like the Pharisees who are opposing Jesus in our text. We belittle his grace. To just think what an amazing thing it is that this, this very one whom they oppose, who confounded them with his great wisdom and grace, he comes to us and he invites us to come to sit at his feet and to learn from him. He doesn't just invite us, he commands us, come to me, sit, receive my wisdom, learn from me. What amazing grace. That's grace which in the end keeps us from the error of legalism, but it's also grace which keeps us from the error of antinomianism, that of being against the law of God, believing that that, that, that those who are under the grace and those who know the God of love and grace, that the law, the commandments have no place in our lives, that we're sort of freed from any obligation to obey the commandments. To, to believe that, I think, is to completely miss the love principle of the law. It's certainly to forget the words of our Lord who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, how we desperately need to remember those words. You know, we live in a world that is against God and that takes, ignores God's laws and redefines love in a way that's completely contrary to God and his kingdom, right? You've seen those words. You can just walk down Georgetown and you'll see it on signs in the yards. And what does it say? Love is what? Love is love. That is to say, we'll do whatever makes us feel good and we'll call that Love. This is a world which, which seeks to impose upon us a complete redefinition of love. Seeks to convince us that if we, if we hold the God's commandments, we are the ones who are unloving, intolerant, and unloving. Beloved, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. And the only thing this morning that can keep us from going down that dangerous path is seeing how beautifully God's love and God's law is brought together in Christ. How wonderfully we, we see God's law regarding our, our duty towards him and our duty towards fellow man fulfilled for us in Christ and fulfilled in us as we live that life which is ours in Jesus Christ, but how beautifully Jesus shows us that the duty towards God and duty towards man are bound together by that love principle. We know that you can't truly, you can't truly love God unless you also love your fellow man, right? You know, we can't come into worship and say, Oh, I love God so much. I worship him and then run out the door and leave behind our brothers and sisters and do nothing by way of 
entering into their lives and showing them love and serving them and so forth. But it's also uh, so important to remember that you cannot truly, you can't truly love your fellow man unless that love flows out of your, your love of God, unless you truly know him and love him. Again, the only one, the only one who can keep us from going down that, that path where we live contrary to God's love is this one, Jesus, the one who perfectly loved his God and loved us in all that he did all the way to the cross, and it was death, his resurrection, and the way he's so wonderfully revealed in the text before us this morning. So what is God calling us to do today, brothers and sisters? In a sense, I think he's calling us to do what the Karamajong would do when they knew they were licked. They'd say, I say nothing. I put my hand over my mouth, and I surrender. I say, you win. I submit to you, Lord Jesus. Fall on your face before Christ. See him for all that he is, the one who is greater than Moses, the one who is the supreme revelation of God's love, the one who's greater than David, not only David's Lord, not only David's son, that is, but David's Lord. And by God's grace, we don't run away from him like his enemy, but we surrender our lives to him, knowing that his kingdom will soon come in glory, and what a glorious kingdom it will be. The, 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 uh, the mouths of all of the wicked will be silenced, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we do, do today? We submit to him. We take up our place in his kingdom. and We follow his laws. We love with his perfect love. May God help us to do that in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, how we praise you and thank you that by your grace, you have made us to be those who don't oppose you, but those who submit to you. We would receive your word again this day. Oh, Father, may it fill us. May it dwell in our hearts by faith. May it be the gospel of Jesus Christ that so nourishes us, our souls, that it would become for us a means by you which you would conform us into his image. Lord, help us to go from this place, glorying in all that Jesus is, walking in obedience to his commandments and bringing glory to your great name. Hear us, Lord God, for we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.